At the beginning of our worship service at the nine o'clock, one of our three-year-olds came to me and handed this to me. And it has her name here. Her mother printed her name, Lennon. It's Lennon Mendoza. The date on it, 820. That's a little... I mean, she's walking by faith and not by sight, right? 820. That, isn't, that hasn't happened yet, has it? Thank, thank God. I, I thought I might have missed a few days. But it's a beautiful little painting. And she said, would you pray for my boo-boo? And she had a little band-aid on her knee. She's a beautiful little child. And I said, of course. Her mother brought her for that reason. I laid my hand on her and prayed for her. It's wonderful, isn't it, the kind of faith that a little child has? The innocence of it. Some people might even say the gullibility of it, the naivety of it. But what we know is that Jesus says, unless we become like little children, we will not enter the kingdom of God. We come to Him humbly like a little child, and He responds. There was a family who resided in Dallas in the late 1960s. The family owned a private business. God was working in their hearts. And the father and mother of four children, school-aged, all of them, they sensed God was calling them to leave the business world to pursue training to become pastor and pastor's wife of a church. Well, they sold their business at a great loss, I might add. And things became rather tight around their house. They didn't really have to live by a budget because their business flourished. But now they found themselves in a different place. And it was an opportune time to teach their children to depend more upon the Lord. They would have devotions every night. And what they would do, they would ask, do any of you children have a prayer request? Each child, ranging from age of about 12 all the way down to 7, would register a request or reiterate one which had been made earlier. This particular night, the youngest, who was 7 years old, boy, when it came his turn to give his request, he asked if they could pray for his getting a new shirt. School was about to start, and he didn't have any new clothing. You know, it's bad being at the bottom of the food chain in a family, isn't it? Number four. I'm not sure how many boys there were. I know that the oldest child was a boy. But hand-me-downs make a young man grow weary, right? (laughs) Not merely a young girl, but a young man grow weary. So he asked if they could pray. And the mother was the secretary, and she would keep track. And what the parents did very wisely, they got a loose-leaf notebook and put pieces of paper in it. And then on the left-hand side of the page, they would write, We ask. On the right-hand side, He answers. And whenever they would get an answer, they would post the answer. And this, of course, built up the faith. Look, if you have children at home... Even if you don't and you're married, it's a good practice, isn't it? To pray this way and see the hand of God work. Weeks passed, no response from God. They didn't have money in the treasury to buy new clothes. That had already been established by the head of the household. The mother received a call from a man who went to their church. He was the manager 
of the boys' department at one of the local stores in Dallas. And he said, is it possible that one or more of your children might be able to benefit from a shirt? And the wife said, of course it would be. We've been praying for that. And he said, what size does the boy wear? And she said, a seven. Perfect size. And she said, when can we get the shirt? He said, it's not just one shirt, it's 12 shirts. And so she went and picked the shirts up, and she was so excited, she had a hard time keeping the secret. But she wanted the entire family to witness it. The older boy was let in. The older boy was the eldest child. And he was let in on the secret. And he was given the responsibility when they sat down for the devotions to go quietly and get the shirts and bring them in. But he didn't bring them in all at once. He was told by his mom, bring them in one at a time. When the first shirt came in, the little boy's face just was so aglow and he was so happy that the Lord had answered his prayer. And then the brother left a second time and all the way to 12 times. They had a revival in that house, didn't they? (laughs) They did. God answers prayer. Not just any prayer, but he answers prayers as God has established the parameters for answered prayers. I'm sure there are people here today who have unanswered prayer. Some of you have given up on praying because it doesn't seem God ever hears your prayer. Today, we're going to look at the life of this man, Elijah. And from his life, we're going to extract principles that are necessary for us to have our prayers answered. I hope you are eager to learn what those are. We'll begin in the New Testament book of James. We're going to read the last sentence of verse 2 of chapter 4, coupled with the third verse. And then we're going to go to the fifth chapter and read three verses which we read last week. James chapter 4, the last sentence of verse 2 says this, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasures. Let's turn the page to James chapter 5 and begin with verse 16. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Take note once more that this great prophet, the one who arguably was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, Remember, it was he and Moses who showed up at the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses obviously representing the law or the Torah. And Elijah representing the prophets. By the way, did Elijah die? No. We're going to learn about that soon, hopefully, in the next week or two. He did not die. But this man was a man who had a nature just like you and I have a nature. We are at no more a disadvantage than Elijah was in his own strength to have a life which was characterized by answered 
prayer. Keep this in mind as we consider once more the last sentence of verse 16. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now turn back to the book of 1 Kings from which we read earlier. We're going to look at this and try to discover what is true of the person whose prayers are answered. It's rather plain, isn't it? In James chapter 5, verse 16, a righteous man, the prayer of a righteous man or woman can accomplish much. The effective prayer of a righteous woman or man can accomplish much. Which raises the very important question, what are the traits of a righteous person? We want to know, don't we? In order to have this kind of prayer life that characterize the prophet Elijah. The first thing that we're going to see is that the righteous person is a person who is taught in the school of righteousness and the place of the teaching is in solitude. When we encounter this man, Elijah, he is alone. In fact, as soon as he delivers the mail that God has given him to deliver to Ahab, the wicked king of Israel, God tells him to leave and he sends him into an uninhabited place. It's called the brook Cherith. It really was not a brook as we would think of a brook. The word translated brook is the word in Hebrew, wadi, and a wadi is just a gulch, really, an arroyo, a gully. It's a place that most of the time outside the rainy season would be void of any water. And God sent him there to be alone. We cannot become righteous only by meeting in a place like this. Hearing the Word of God, if it's properly taught, we are helped and challenged. However, we must have time alone. And that man, Elijah, grew exponentially, I'm sure, in that year or so, maybe a year and a half. And what did God say? I have commanded the ravens to come and to feed you. That's what I call delivery service of the first rank. And every morning, these birds would come and feed him. He had enough water until the drought dried all the water supply up. And then the Lord sent him somewhere else. And remember, he says, I have commanded, God says, I have commanded the ravens to provide for you. And then he sends him far away from where he had been because he was east of the Jordan. And he sends him to Sidon. Do you know where Sidon is? It's not even in Israel. It's in what was known as Phoenicia. So he sends him to a widow there. And he says, I have commanded a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. She was not even a descendant of Abraham. She was a Gentile, as we would say. I have sent you to her, and I have commanded her to provide for you. What we note about this righteous man, Elijah, he obeyed the Lord. There's no dialogue from his side, it's just a monologue. God says, do something. And what does he do? He does something. He does the difficult when he goes to Ahab. Now he does an, another kind of difficult situation to go and be alone, just to live with birds. And for years, he, as far as he knew, he would be there. Then he goes to a country that's Gentile. And he goes to a woman. 
And you'd feel a little odd, wouldn't you? Just coming up to an absolute stranger and saying, the Lord has commanded you to feed me. Well, the Lord had gotten through to this lady probably. How he spoke to her, we don't know. But when he found the woman, the woman was gathering up some wood. Actually, the literal translation of the Hebrew is two sticks. She had two sticks of wood. One for her, one for her son. And she said to him when he said, feed me. Give me some of your food. She says, I don't have much. I've just got a little bit of oil and a handful of flour. I'm going to bake a piece of bread. My son and I will eat it. Then we're going to die. They were malnourished. They were on the edge of death. But he says, please do what I said. He was very polite. He said, please twice. Please do what I'm asking you to do. And so she did. And we know the rest of the story. Isn't it a great story? A miracle? How in her obedience to the Lord, she too began her journey toward knowing the Lord. And then as we read, the son fell ill. He died. The man, Elijah, goes to his room. He stretches himself out over this body three times, and he asks the Lord to give him breath. Lord, please don't curse this woman by my presence here. He felt terrible about it. He said, please give this boy breath. And after he'd asked three times, what happened? Breath was restored to this child. And then, as we read in the last verse of that chapter, what we read is that she said, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. She was converted. This is important for us to understand. When we who know the Lord, if we are in the school of righteousness that God has established for us. I should interrupt myself and take note of the important truth that there is no man who is righteous, no, not one. No man can save himself. No woman can save herself. We have to be saved by God, and God did exactly that when He made God who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf in order that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Elijah's righteousness was not his own. He was a descendant of Abraham. What did God say to Abraham, the progenitor of this man, Elijah? He said, I have counted your faith as righteousness. We become right with God through trusting in Jesus Christ alone, by faith alone. That's how anyone becomes righteous. But what we do also know in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Bible says, Jesus Christ is our righteousness. We can go to the bank with that. We can count on that throughout our entire lives. But when we have that kind of life, we are people who are taught to be righteous by our Lord. And He has an ear that is always bent in the direction of a righteous woman or a righteous man. Well, we see this great man of God, righteous, teachable, being taught one-on-one. This is what the Lord does for us, believe it or not. He wants to be our teacher That's why we go to the Word of God, not just in a setting like this. Thank God our church is committed to the trustworthiness of the Bible. That all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, 
Correcting in what? Training in what? Righteousness. God has given us His Word. He has given us His Spirit who inspired the Word of God, moved in the hearts of men and women to give us the Word of God. And therefore, we are people who are taught by none other than God Himself one-to-one in that kind of situation. Don't lament the fact that you feel isolated or alone, maybe by an illness, maybe by a broken relationship, maybe by the loss of work. Whatever that may be, do not let that daunt you. If you know Jesus Christ, then you have access to the Word of God. You can understand it as you come before Him and ask Him to be your teacher by the Spirit of God. You will grow in your relationship. So here's the first thing. Very important. Answered prayer is the province of the person who is righteous. And a righteous person is a person who is trained in righteousness by the Lord Himself in a private situation, just like Elijah was. You may not be fed by ravens. You might not live in the wilderness by a dried up brook. You may not be sent to a foreign land to represent the Lord there where you will be taken care of, but the Lord knows. This is a good place for me to stop. And think with me about the promises that were made that are recorded here. The same promise in effect twice. I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. I have commanded for a widow to provide for you. That's a great promise. Did the man claim the promise? Did he embrace it? Why, sure he did. How do we know? He went to the places that God told him to go. And he was taken care of. Is there anything that vaguely resembles that in your life or my life? Do we have promises at our disposal that God has given us as His sons and daughters, as we sang, He's a good, good Father. Indeed, He is. He has promised if we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, then all the necessities of life will be ours. We don't have to worry one second as to whether we are going to have our food needs met and our clothing needs met. The Lord has promised And he comes through in his promise. Another verse in that regard that I love to claim, and I claim it for our church, and I know God answers it. Our church has been so blessed by the Lord. We never ask people for money. It's just not in our DNA as a church. We give you opportunity. We teach about what God would have you to do, but we never bug you. We don't take pledges and all that sort of thing. But the Lord continues to take care of us even during this time of the pandemic. It's just unbelievable. And do you know why I believe? This is why I believe. We're His children. But that promise in Philippians 4.19 which says, My God shall supply all your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Now listen carefully. That was written to the only church who supported the Apostle Paul in his mission work. 
We, as a church, we must continue to have an outward focus to help brothers and sisters whom God has called and equipped to take the gospel around the world. There's always that tendency for me as the leader of the church when I look at the proposed budget for the coming year and I take a big gulp and I'm thinking, whoa, that's a lot of money. And every time the Lord comes and He gives it, I, I, I don't use the missions part of our budget as a rabbit's foot. I don't believe in that. But I do believe in the Word of God. And God will continue to take care of our church and you being a part of it, He will do that in your life and I too, if we are doing what? We are sharing of the resources that God has made available to us and gladly doing that. So the promises of God. The righteous person claims the promises of God. Someone has taken the trouble to count up the number of promises in the Bible. There are over 7,000 promises in the Bible. God is a God who wants to promise you and me the things that He has for us. Now, sometimes He promises difficulty, doesn't He? Sometimes He does. It's rare, but He does. For instance, He says through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, but also later through Solomon, when Solomon records what God says at the dedication of the temple that Solomon had led Israel to build to worship the Lord more completely in. He said to, the, to him, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain. And why would God shut up the heavens? Just stop here. Why would he shut up the heavens? Because people are not being who they're called to be. They're forsaking righteousness. They're not putting themselves in position to hear what the Lord says, not do it as a hobby, but to hear it so they can know how to express a righteous life. And God will use it in others' lives who may not know Christ, just like God used Elijah's righteousness to touch the heart of this woman who was a Gentile in Zarephath and Sidon. And undoubtedly, we don't know the rest of the story regarding the young lad who was dead and was raised back to life, we know he probably became a follower of the Lord. Some would even say that the servant who is unnamed in the latter part of 1 Kings 18 could have been this young man. But God will use us as we claim the promises of God in our life. In the book of John, chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. What a promise, right? I have to fulfill two obligations. What is the first one? If you abide in me, if I abide in Christ. Now, let's back up and think about Elijah. Was Elijah accustomed to abiding in God? That raises another question. What does it mean to abide in Christ for us, who is God, of course, in the flesh? Jesus helps us with this in John 8, where he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will be a person who is set free. You're my disciple and you will be set free. So, what does it boil down to when it calls us, the Word of God calls us, to abide in Christ? 
if you abide in me, it would be, be a man or a woman who is willing to live in the power of Christ, just like a branch in a vine lives in the power to produce fruit, living in that close, dependent connection. Remember that the hallmark of a righteous woman or a righteous man is that she or he is connected to the Lord, is loving the Lord by depending upon Him. This is what God wants for you and me. That's something we fulfill. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and shall be done for you. This is one of the most powerful promises in the Bible about prayer. So what is the second part? And my words abide in you. This is not the word that we normally associate with the, the English word in the New Testament that's translated by our term word. It's a word which means a word from the broader word. The Bible, all of it, is the word of God. The word that's used here is a specialized, customized word directed to you by the Spirit of God from the Bible. A word, little w, from the big word, big w. God speaks to us, just like he did a customized word to Elijah, and just like he does to us. So, we need to understand that in that category of words, his words abiding in us would be commands he gives to us. He wants us to be obedient. Elijah, as I've already said, was obedient. There was no argument on his part. Psalm 119, verse 6, he says, psalmist writes, I hastened and did not delay to obey your commandments. This is the heart of a person who is pursuing Christ. A heart of a person who is putting Him first in his or her life. This is what God wants for each of us in our lives. He wants us to become righteous in Christ. We have righteousness, but practically speaking, that too. So we obey. But another application of this term words from the whole counsel of God would be the promises of God, to claim the promises of God, to trust God to do His work on our behalf. We're ever growing in dependence upon the Lord. We should be until we take our last breath here on earth. The most distinguished person who has ever stood where I stand here today I doubt if there's anyone here today who knows about this. But James I. Packer came and preached in our church probably over 20 years ago at least on a Sunday night. We didn't have time to prepare for him. Dr. Packer was a guest here at a nearby Anglican church. And the pastor there said to me, Mike, do you all have Sunday night services? I said, yes, we do, Hal. And he said, would you be interested in Dr. Packer's coming and preaching to your church tonight. I said, would we? It would be such an honor. He asked me that question after I'd been with him and about 50 other El Paso pastors who had gathered to hear what Dr. Packer had to say on the Saturday before the Sunday night in question. He came here. He was such a delightful person. One of the most humble people I have ever seen in my life never putting himself forward. 
you would have thought he was just some ordinary guy off the street. He was an extraordinary man because he was in Christ. And it was obvious. It's obvious in his book, Knowing God, in the many other books which he had penned. He only went to be with the Lord last month on the 17th of July, 93 years of age. When he was talking to the pastors that day, he said, Men, I'm encouraging you to develop a different kind of theology. I describe it as a promise box theology. And then he went on to explain what he meant. He said, when I was a boy growing up in my parents' home, we would have at our table a box. I envisioned him talking about like a recipe box. And in it were cards. And on each card, handwritten, was a verse of Scripture which which was a promise from God. And each meal, one of us would have the responsibility to pick the next card up and simply read it. That was all we did. Then we said, grace. And then it was put to the back. And this went on and on. He said, what we need in our churches, and he was British. He was in Canada working at that time in British Columbia. But he said, we need promise box theology, simple theology, right out of the Word of God. Let me ask you, are you claiming the promises of God that are yours? Are you a man who is pursuing first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Parents, would you dare to begin this practice in your own home where you would teach your children the value of the Word of God and teach them how to claim the promises of God, just like Erin Mendoza was trying to teach her daughter to learn to come to the Lord, not to the pastor. Maybe so, because if anyone is sick, what is that supposed to cause that person to do? Call for the elders. The elders will come, anoint with oil, lay hands on that person, and the prayer of faith will raise that person from his or her sickbed. But we need to be people who practice promise book theology. Do you think he would ever outgrow that kind of theology? I'd say if you have, you're too big for your britches. You need to go back and start all over. Become humble. Remember, humility is the earmark of a teachable person. And also persistence. Let's go to our text in chapter 18 and begin with verse 41. Now Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. Do you think he really heard it with his physical ears? Well, I don't know. God could have given him extraordinary hearing and he could hear the storm that was not even cresting the horizon from the west. He may have heard it. But probably he was hearing by faith. Would you agree? Faith comes from hearing. Hearing by the word of Christ. Our faith grows in direct proportion to our listening to the Lord speak to us. He had an ear for the Lord. The Lord had his ear. Faith grew. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he crouched down on the earth. Wow. Tell you what I like to do after a day of serving the Lord, either in this way or in other ways, where you sense that God has responded to your request to use you. You've seen him work in people's lives. I want a good meal. You know what I mean? But what does Elijah do? He goes to prayer, doesn't he? 
He's a righteous man. There's nothing sinful about eating as long as you eat in moderation. But what we need to do is we need to see where this man's heart was. In the book of Psalm 73, the psalmist says, Whom do I have in heaven but you, Lord? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. I sense that in Elijah. I'm a far cry from that in my life. But what you know, we all, I want you to know we all ought to be working. And as we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, we will be growing in that direction in our lives. He put His face between His knees as He crouched down on the earth. This speaks of humility. We've already talked about humility. And here we see next His persistence. He said to His servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. So He went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And He said, Go back seven times. There's no indication that He lifted up His eyes and looked to the west. He kept Himself in this position of humility And he gave orders. And seven times it happened. He went back the second time, the third, the fourth, the fifth. What if he had stopped with giving the order at the sixth time? But he had faith. Why? Because God had told him it was going to happen. He heard the roaring of the rain in his ear. In verse 44 it says, It came about at the seventh time. That he said, Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, so that the heavy shower does not stop you. So it came about in a little while that the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Jezreel was 25 miles away. I got my little scale out and got a map. I found a map in the back of my Bible that has Mount Carmel on it and then Jezreel. And my figuring, 25 miles. That's a pretty good trip by chariot, wouldn't you guess? Guess what we see in the next verse. Look at it. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. A marathon. Unbelievable. And he outran the chariot. Of Ahab. It could have been because the horses and the chariot got bogged down in the mud. I don't know. But he got there. Here's the other thing. The other thing about a righteous person. What is a righteous person? How do you know if you're righteous? Are you teachable? Do you, are you eager to learn from the Lord? Are you eager to hear the Word of God? Are you eager to claim the promises of God? Do you believe God in that sense? Are you a person who enjoys time alone with the Lord and makes time to be alone with the Lord? Righteous people do that. Righteous people are not simply about themselves. They're unselfish. We read from James chapter 4, you do not have because you do not ask. And let me stop there just a moment. This is literally what is said in the original language. You do not have because you do not keep on asking Does that sound familiar to you? Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Here again, here's what Jesus says. Keep on asking. That's what the language would indicate. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Don't give up. There's more than one person here today who's prayed a long time in the past for someone. 
or something. And there has been no answer in time. And as far as you know, you pray to properly. You know what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 5. And this is the confidence which we have before God that we've asked anything according to His will. We know that He hears us. Now listen. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have that granted to us. Do you believe that? Yes, I do, you say. I've been praying like that for a long time, but nothing's happened. There's been no movement in that situation or that person, and I'm discouraged. Don't let the absence of the answer discourage you. Keep walking with the Lord. Remember, Elijah, we don't know how long he lived before he comes on the scene. We don't know how old the guy was. But he had probably prayed before, but he grew in his capacity because he spent time before the Lord, and the Lord answered his prayer. Don't give up. It's always too early. He walked with God, didn't he? It reminds me of the other person in the Bible who never died, Enoch. His story is told in the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, and it simply says, Enoch walked with the Lord, and he was no more. He was translated just like later Elijah was. They walked by faith and not by sight. They walked in the Spirit and not in the flesh. They depended upon the Lord completely. And in God's way and God's time, their prayers were answered. Some of you may be old enough like I am. Not many of you are as old as I am, but let me go ahead and say this anyway. I remember when there was a little jingle that went around, and I'd see it on bumper stickers, and it went like this, prayer changes things. Do you remember that little adage, prayer changes things? I disagree with that. Prayer changes people. He changes us. And what I've learned in times when I have been seeking the Lord, and I I knew I was in sync with the Word of God, first Of all, when I don't get an answer and I'm praying for it and I think I'm in the will of God, I have to remember what the Bible says in the book of Psalm 66. It says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So I have to say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me, Lord, and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the righteous way. Lead me. i got to get clear there in my relationship to the Lord. And then I'm putting myself in a position... To have my prayer heard. But let's say I've done that. God uses that. Do you know what He does? He has used that in my life. He used it in Elijah's life, I'm sure. He's used it in so many other people's lives to decentralize themselves. To take themselves off the pedestal. And put the Lord where He belongs. In first place. And to want that more than anything in your life. That Jesus Christ is not just a sometime Lord, but an all the time Lord in your life. And when that happens, we're in a position to be heard from the Lord and to watch God work and see what He does in answer to our prayers. It's really a step of maturing to wrestle with this concept and to yield ourselves to the Lord. 
Say, Lord, here I am. And then wait on the Lord. Watch Him work. Here's the greater work, I think, than even answering that prayer that you've been praying for some time. That is the work He does in your own heart so that He will have you, perhaps even like an Elijah, to do things that will glorify Him. This is the whole purpose. Dr. Packer, who passed away, as I mentioned last month, in the last year of his life, he was interviewed. And the interview showed up in a magazine called Bible Study. I read it. And he was asked, if you were to give a parting piece of advice to believers, what would it be? It was a four-word piece of advice. Glorify Christ every way. Why are we here? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whether you pray or you preach or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Prayer is designed for us to glorify the Lord because when He answers, we know it had nothing to do with us. It had everything to do with Him. And He gets the glory from our hearts. And interestingly enough, people will know that God did it, not us. George Mueller, one of the greatest men in the history of the church, probably since the 19th century in recorded history of church life worldwide, the greatest man of faith. He was assigned a pastorate after having been born in Prussia, then educated in Holland. He found his way to Great Britain, and he was assigned a church in Bristol, England, which was an industrial city. It was at the height of the Industrial Revolution, and he would see children who were orphans, and his heart went out to them. And he knew that some of them were having to work in the factories just to eke out an existence And he asked God, God, do you want me to start an orphanage for these children? And the Lord put it in his heart to do that. And he resigned his church. He was making 30 pounds sterling a year. And he quit it. God told him to quit the church and devote himself fully to this. He was looking for a place where to house these kids. And God showed him the place, but he didn't have the money. And he decided that God wanted him not to ever ask for a penny from anybody. Hudson Taylor, the great founder of the China Inland Mission, he took his pattern of doing what he did. He never asked a soul for a penny. Both of these great men. But in the case of Mueller, God provided the pounds necessary to get that house for 30 kids. Before it was all said and done, his orphanage is plural, in Bristol, housed 2,100 children. And they did not wear hand-me-down clothes, by the way. He determined on the front end, these children are going to be as well-dressed as any other child in the middle-class schools that they attend in our neighborhood. And that always happened. They never missed a meal. Nothing. Because he trusted in the Lord. He claimed the promises of God. He would say every morning, I have to get up. And when I get up, I have to get my soul happy in the Lord. And he would go out walking for over an hour and he would recite Scripture and praise the Lord. And God made him happy in his soul. Then he was ready to do the rest of the work. 
He praised God, and then God worked in his heart and gave him other promises. At the end of his life, near the end of his life, he lived into his 90s like Dr. Packer. And he was asked about what had happened in his life. And he said, do you know, over the years I prayed for many people who did not know Christ. And I kept a list. He had a prayer list. And he kept a list of those for whom he was praying. I asked. God answered. He talked about some people for whom he had been praying at this time. He was in his 80s when he gave this response to the interviewer. He said, I prayed for some people over 10 years every day that they would be saved. Have you prayed 10 years for anybody to be saved? 10 years every day? He prayed every day when he passed away. There were three people left on his list who had not come to Christ. I don't know how many there were, probably hundreds of people, maybe thousands for whom he had prayed. At his funeral, the three men for whom he had prayed gave their lives to Christ. Look, God wants to do that through you and me. Do you think he can do that through you? Are you a natural person? Are you a person who's just sort of ordinary, plain vanilla? You don't think God can use you to do anything that's noteworthy? Well, think again. You are righteous in Christ if you know Him. And the Holy Spirit lives in you. Just like He lived in Elijah. Just like He lived in Mr. Mueller and Hudson Taylor and Gladys Aylward and Amy Carmichael and some of these great Elizabeth Elliot, some of these great saints. We stand in awe of them. But never stand in awe of the person God uses, but always stand in awe of the God who uses people. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for teaching us today what it means to have our prayers answered. We want to be people, Lord, who see you glorified in our lives, in our church, Lord. We don't want to be just a congregation of people. We want to be a living body of believers And we see you do mighty things, not for us, O Lord, not for us, but your name to be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.